Before I get started, once again, I'd like to give Pastor Jonathan just great kudos on the VBS by man standard. You might even say it was a failure because of the number of kids that we had. And we had, I remember Jonathan praying specifically, oh Lord, we don't care about the number. We want to be able to pour into these kids' life. And we did that tremendously the entire week. Everyone who served, as Bob said, everyone who was at home praying, we felt those because the kids... And you, you, the barometer of kids enjoying coming to VBS, a lot usually come at the beginning, then they start tailing off and they tail off. But every one of those kids, they came and they stayed the entire week. And then it was tears of, of joy and sadness that they would leave again. So be, just be praying for them. Uh, I want to give thanks to everyone for, for the people who put the backing up and everything. I know it was a great cause. It was for the VBS. But I want to give special thanks this morning to Maria. And Lydia said, it's three Marias. But the Maria that I know, she know I'm talking about. Will she come up here for a minute? Because I want to give her these flowers. Yeah. I told her all week long, this woman never tires of serving. I mean, when we were going out the door, remember that Sunday, those boxes? I said, don't worry about that. Sit down and rest. She never sits down. The whole entire week, she was either in a, dressed up in a, in in, in a, yeah, in a costume. She'd take that off and go back work, just serving all along. But not only Maria, I wish I had the money to give everyone, because everyone who came and served, it was a blessing. I know Savannah, how they put up the backdrop and everything, all those things they did. Nothing went unnoticed, but I just wanted to tell you how much we're appreciative of that. Coming over to, to Countryside, you were doing all those things, and not only did we get blessed by Pastor Jonathan coming down here, Heck, his whole family came down. So we just get blessings on top of blessings. So I just want to say thank you very much, okay? Give her a hand. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul, this chapter just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And stick with the flow of it. Paul, he's finished his apostolic defense, and he returns to the matter that's at hand. It seems as if really, of all the things Paul has said, we wonder when it will begin to solidify into these Corinthians. Many are still in Corinth, and they're demanding their rights to attend these cultic mills that Paul said, hey, be aware of. If you're not offended by it, think about your brother or sister in Christ who could be offended. Going to these pagan temples and eating there. And as I was thinking about that, I'm reminded of my ex-son-in-law. Hmm. 
And he told me this one day. He said, for some reason, Vic, I don't know why, but for some reason, the wings are always better at Hooters. (laughs) I laugh then and I laugh now every time I think of that. Paul is warning these guys, as you go and eat in these cultic meals, remember they're being sacrificed to idols. And he, he goes on to say idols aren't anything. But you don't only have to worry about you and your consciousness, but your brother or sister consciousness, if they see you with a weak conscience, they're emboldened to do the same thing. And if they do it and they don't do it in faith, then they're sinning. So you have to watch all of that. Paul says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge of eating in in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And Paul is speaking directly to those that are opposing him. And he claps back with an Old Testament examples that they're in danger. Let me say that again. They're in danger by frequently visiting temple attendants because that's not compatible with the Christian lifestyle, Paul is wanting them to know. This is right on the heels of the last few verses that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, has spoken on in chapter 9 when he says, I don't know if you can put it up there. I just put it down, but it, needs, it goes with this. It says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we for an an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body. Paul is telling the church at Corinth. Oh, yeah, I'm in the race. I've been born again, but yet I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Why? Lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. I want you to picture this morning a gold-plated box with a farm animal on it. And you have some weird guy dressed up in Old Testament garb, and he's bowing down to it, and that's his idol. You know, I've never been tempted to bow down in front of a gilded animal, so you might say, hey, that's no problem for me. But God knows our heart, yet in Scripture, in book after book and verse after verse, idolatry is presented as this immutable relevant concept, a temptation for most people that we need to constantly and be vigilant about as we walk on this earth. Do I have an idolatry problem is the question. Well, you let me know your answer after these 11 verses. It seems the scripture keeps talking about be careful about idols. Look at verse 14. Therefore, Paul says, My beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, we're going to take that and pull it out of its historical concept, out of its setting, and we're going to begin to define idolatry. 
what it is, and maybe it will get us to think a little. In my heart, as, I, as I'm concerned for someone living in the 21st century, you see, idols are in Scripture defined, though your dictionary might not define it this way, as anything that's going to supplant the place of God in your life. Supremacy in my heart, my devotion, my loyalty, my affection, my service. Well, now all of a sudden, there's some, something else there that's more important than serving the Lord. And all of a sudden, there's something else there that's more important than being devoted to the Lord. That's the whole idolatry scheme. And the Bible says, hey, wait a minute. Be careful about that, believers, because God ought to dwell in our hearts richly above any and everything else. And now all of a sudden, you've got things creeping in that might make you an idolatrous. How about that nice blue metallic Porsche I've been talking about? God knows if I probably got that, received that, that would become an idol to me. God loving me and knowing me, he's not going to let that happen. That's just the way he is. But my whole affection, devotion, loyalty, what is that too? God doesn't want anything to get in the way of pursuing him. But before us, we need to check our hearts. That's what we need to do. Be careful of what my heart is doing with the things I have. He takes us, Paul will take us through a historical rundown because he's giving the proof of idolaters, and he'll say more than that too, in the Old Testament. He talks about Israel as his example here of the people that, that chose idolatry after God had, this is key, had allowed them to run the race. They're in the race. God says, but you failed because you turned to idolatry. And remember, the larger context is people trying to assert their rights. I have a right to do this. I have a right to eat here. I have a right to date this girl. I have a right to do all these things. And God is saying, be careful. Be careful you have a right to some of these things. But make sure your conscience is okay with it. And make sure your friends, if they're around, their conscience is okay with it. Make sure it doesn't become idolatry to you. I don't know your weaknesses. You don't know mine. But we need to be careful to evaluate everything on that question. What is, gonna, what is it going to do to my heart? Is it going to supplant God's throne of my heart away? And Paul says, look at these people. He gives an example. These Israelites who, unfortunately, they have a lot of rights, no doubt about it. They have a lot of privilege because God has given it to them. But they go into it with an unchecked heart. They were led to idolatry. So he says in verse 1, moreover, brethren... Paul giving them a warning. I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers, the Jewish progeny, 
the ones he split the Red Sea wide open so they could walk on to be free from Egyptian bondage. He says they were under the cloud. That tells me they had started the race right there. A group of people, I've set you free. You've been redeemed. Now you're running a race. That's what he says. God had manifested himself through this cloud that the children of Israel would follow in the desert. He says all passed through the sea. The Egyptians, you remember, are chasing them from Egypt. And while God supernaturally leads them around, he supernaturally delivers them. Verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Remember the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea on dry ground? Baptized is a transliterated word. They simply took that word out of the Greek and gave it an English meaning, an English spelling. Baptizo means to identify with. In fact, water baptism has that meaning as it speaks of our identification with Christ. Galatians 3.27 tells us, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's what the children of Israel did while they were standing uh, on the shores when the water split. God identified them with him. It says in Romans 6, 3, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? It simply means they were identified with Moses. Hebrews eleven twenty nine 29 tells us by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. We need to understand that verb baptism simply means, once again, to be placed into something or someone, but it's a theological loaded term in the New Testament because we often think of New Testament term of being baptized or placed into Christ. They were placed into Moses as they crossed the Red Sea. Do you remember the account, the Old Testament Israelites? God constantly says, these guys are knuckleheads. I'm going to wipe them out. And remember, Moses being their intercessor would always go back and plead to God not to do that. He was God's prophet. He was God's redeemer at this point. He would stand up and say, hey, don't do this, God. Remember your promise to the Israelites. The favor of God rested on the Israelites. Because God favored Moses. And so this kind of spills over. God saw the Israelites through the lens of Moses, if you will, and gave them special favor. They were baptized into Moses. That's what he's saying there. Just like when we are born again, we are baptized into Christ. So what am I saying? In the cloud and in the sea, that was all really for Moses. God cared about Moses. Verse 3, he says, all ate the same spiritual food. They would go out in the morning, the coriander seed, the manna would be on the grass or on the ground, and they would use that and they would eat that manna, a miraculous provision that God gave to his children because they're his children now. Verse 4 says, 
and all drank the same spiritual drink. They would get thirsty in the desert, no water out in the desert. Moses, he struck the rock the first time. All the rest of the times, all he had to do was speak to it. And crystal clear water, I believe, would come out. Notice what it says. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so listen, was it a well or was it a rock? Because the Bible doesn't make mistakes. The Bible says this rock followed them. Remember what they were singing? They sung it in numbers, spring up, O well, no water in the desert. But there was a rock following them. A, a lot of theologians says it was Miriam's well, that no matter wherever that rock was and they would hit it or they would dig there, water would surface. God providing. And if you think about that, the God who created the heavens and the earth, it's nothing for him to, to have a rock to lead you all the way through the promised land because he tells us that rock is Christ. I believe it. And then he tells us they have songs, and it says in, 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 in the Psalms, they sing about this rock. So it was a type of Jesus Christ that was following them because remember, they're in the race now. They're not on the sidelines anymore. They're not, huh, you, you made it, you didn't make it. God has placed them in the race. That's the whole point I want you to see. God continually supplied miraculous water as he did the manna. And Paul's interest is not on the water itself, but his source. And once again, that source was Christ. The analogy, what he's showing us, or the type is what he's displaying for us, is a picture of the Lord's Supper. I always say those that are in Christ, those who have been birthed into Christ, that's for you guys. You eat the Lord's Supper. It sustains you. And, and no telling what it does. I've read so many different things it does spiritually. It can heal. It can do anything the Lord gives it his grace to do. But it says in the scriptures that the Lord's Supper is only for believers. That's why Paul, by the Holy Spirit, lets you know from the beginning that they were baptized in the Moses. They're running the race right now. They probably say, hey, we've made it. We've made it. We're here. All we have to do is walk now, which is true. But they did not do that. This is here for our learning. Hard words it can be, but it's here for our learning. The analogy or type is of the Lord's Supper. And we said, who partakes of the Lord's Supper? Those that are believers. It shows the Israelites are favored people. Why? Not so much because of Moses. He was a sinner too. It was about what they drank from, were nursed from. They were sustained from this rock. And that's why it lets us know this rock was Christ. He accompanied them all the way through. The one thing we miss about this whole understanding of Old Testament and New Testament people is 
we sometimes stumble over how did God accept these people in the Old Testament? And the best way I figured out how to explain it to people, it's a credit card or a debit card. That's what we're going to use this example for. And we can understand the difference. The credit card, which is in the Old Testament, I buy this stuff and I hope to pay it off after a month's time. Debit cards, the money is already there in the account. Lay the debit card down, you purchase it, it belongs to you. It's taken out of the account, Christ's account, because in Scripture, Christ is our account. And if you're in the Old Testament, anytime you read the Old Testament, we're looking forward. They're looking forward to the payment. It was on credit then. That redemption, it was coming, but it was on credit. The money isn't there yet. Now, it's there in God's timing. He's outside of time. He knows what he's going to do. But for everybody looking and waiting, the Messiah hadn't come, so it's on credit. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. But, oh, boy, when we get in the New Testament, it's something about throwing that debit card down and you pay for it, and you know it's paid for right then and there. I like that sometimes. Then sometimes, hey, I'm not ready to pay for it. Let's use the credit card. But it's better. And that's what the New Testament does. It's, it's paid for. Christ has redeemed us. And that's what Paul is speaking of right here. He's redeemed them. Just like on the credit card, these people who are crossing the Red Sea, their redemption is coming. That's why they're in the race. That's why they have to walk now. So that's the difference I look at it. Verse 5 says, but with most of them, God was not well pleased already. While they were blessed, they were favored, they had a lot of advantages, yet God looked at these people in the midst of this favored position as children of God. What do you think they will do? They weren't even pleasing to God at this time. Remember, they started dying. There was thousands of funerals every day for the children of Israel because God was knocking them off. Why would God do that? Remember, Moses sent out the 12 spies, and only two came back with a favorable report, Caleb and Joshua. Now, here comes... Uh, I don't get this theological statement here. It says in verse 5, but with most of them, they all ran the race. They all started the race. Remember that. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That tells you how much he was not well pleased. He wouldn't even give them a burial. The Scripture says they were scattered in the wilderness. This is a hard-hitting statement, but it's true. Only two men from the adult generation that left Egypt came to the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Now, these things, and here it is, God did not want that to happen to the children of Israel, but since it did happen, they fell that way. God says, I'm going to use this as an example to you Corinthians to you New Testament believers, here's your warning, and that's what it is, a loving warning. 
He says, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, here's the first problem I have. I didn't know an ornate farm animal was an evil thing. It's really not about that. It's about the object that we bow down to. It's about what's happening in our hearts because of these things. It's when something supplants God's supremacy in our heart. And so whether it's that car I'm telling you about, or whether it's an animal, or whether it's a recreational activity, it doesn't matter. It's craving something evil, God says. When God ultimately ought to be my supreme concern in life, ought to be all of a believer's supreme concern in their lives. He says in verse 7, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. That's an understatement. It is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's from Exodus 32, 6. It carries some sexual overtones in there. They went after their own thing, doing their own thing. I want this first. God can be second. I'm not concerned with you. I'm concerned with having fun and doing things my way. And these things are more important. And I kind of like that calf deal. And we do that, don't we? Just like the other nations. We have to remember, you think this text is so irrelevant, but it's relevant. It gets really relevant in the next verse. Here are the expressions of idolatry. Even in the Old Testament, it really wasn't about the calf, you see. It was about this whole lifestyle that expressed itself in things like this. He says in verse 8, he's, he begins to give the examples how they drop the ball. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Now, there's an irrelevant topic, isn't it? And in one day... 23,000 fell. For sure we're past all of that. Idolatry becomes relevant quick when we start to see the expressions of idolatry. The expressions of idolatry are like people in the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament, who at times can be lured into seeking things like sexual pleasures outside the boundaries of God's own will for marriage. These lustful relationships or whatever, and all of a sudden, I'm an idolater because God has said in Exodus 20, hey, don't commit adultery. All of a sudden, now I'm chasing that in my heart, my mind, my eyes, or maybe even in my life. And now all of a sudden, God is put on hold. That's idolatry. Because God says, this is the way to do it. And now you're saying, I'll do it my way. Because I want that more than I want to obey you, God. That's the idolatry problem. Now, he's going to list a few more things. But it's important for us 
as we read some of these things like that, that some of these things you might say, wow, I really don't, I can't identify with. But all of a sudden, you're talking about sexual lust here. You need to know your weaknesses. I need to know my weaknesses, especially in the examples given here, where it says, because there's sexual immorality, some 23,000 of them died in one day. Numbers, one of my favorite Old Testament books, but around Numbers 22, 23, 20, and 24, the children of Israel are doing fine. No repercussions for their sin or anything, as we think sometimes. But there's a chapter 25, and that's when Balaam comes on the scene. You remember him, right? And his funny donkey. Remember that account. What was that all about? Think it through. Balaam was hired as the local palm reader by the king of Edom. His name was Balak. And he tells Balaam, hey, I want you to curse the children of Israel because they're just lapping up the land. And I'm, I'm afraid they're going to come and take my land. So why don't you curse them? And the children of Israel wasn't even doing that good at this time. But God did not curse them. Every time Balak, after, he, after Balaam finally gave in, he gave him so much loot, he gave in and said, okay, I'll do it. And he gets on this high hill or mountain, and he looks down at the children of Israel, and he begins to pronounce what? Blessings after blessings after blessings on an obstinate people. He could still only utter out blessing because God was in control. And Balak said, hey, I don't need you to do this. I'm going to take this money if you don't do anything better. Balaam wanted the money so much. That's when chapter 25 of Numbers comes in. You can't, I can't curse them, but I, I've got a way that you can curse. They can curse themselves. He knew that much about God, and he was right. And this is what he did. It reminds me of Balaam trying to curse the children of Israel when he couldn't. I'm an old school guy, so I remember happy days. And I remember Fonzie every time Fonzie, because Fonzie never messed up. But the times he did, he had to apologize. And Fonzie just could never apologize. He'd start trying to get it out, but he just couldn't say it. And that was almost like Balaam. Balaam wanted to curse the children of Israel, but he continued to bless them. And he says, I can't do it. That's why you need to read chapter 25. Remember, these people are going through the wilderness. And he says, but I tell you how you can do it. Why don't you bring these nice girls down, miniskirts and high heels? And, of course, they'll ask them out to the nearest Starbucks. And they're drinking, and they're drinking coffee and just having conversations with them because they have their rights to do that. They can do anything they want to, and that's what he's going to hang them on. And we know the rest of the story. They begin to entertain and sexual immorality, and God says, hey, I can't take this. And he wipes them out and probably would have continued to wipe them all out if it wasn't for one man, Phineas, and he pins his spear through two people. 
and it says the plague stopped. That's how much God hates sexual immorality or any other kind of sin. Remember, these people, they were on their way to the promised land. They had enrolled their way into the promised land. They had got their ticket. Now, I can't be any more clear than that. They had received their ticket to the promised land. They just had to walk now. They just had to walk. Read the scriptures. That's what it's saying. It's a hard scripture. It's, it's, it's really a loving scripture. 24,000 dies right there. He says in verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Now, what's that all about? Turn with me, if you would, to the example where these people were killed by snakes and see what their problem really was. Numbers 21 It's where they go to find the snake incident. What does it mean to test the Lord? Uh, Some some scripture says to tempt him. And do I have that problem? Is that a propensity of mine? Is that a potential idol in my life? Numbers 21.4 says this. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Now, that's, that's a bizarre journey because they just didn't go straight to where they were going. God took them around the way, and it was a long way. And the people began to grumble. They didn't like the way. But God was leading them with the cloud and with Moses, so they knew it was God's way. And they should have been patient and calm with it because God is directing them. And God has their best uh, uh, reason at, at view here. He's leading them in a way that's loving, kind, but it's not enough for them. They don't care that's God leading them. Verse 4 says, but the people, mark these two words, grew impatient on the way. They grew impatient on the way. Do you have a little impatient problem? Never saw it as idolatry? Let's figure it out. They spoke against God and against Moses. They said, Numbers 21, 5, and 6. I'm going to read the NIV for this. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and our souls loathe this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. A minor thing. We're tired of all of this, God. That's what they say. Here's the subtleties of idolatry. Here is God saying, this is my way, my path, my timing, to get you into the promised land. That's my goal, to get you, us, to the promised land. And here's what people visually, that's what what they visually said. I don't like your way, God. I don't like your timing. I like my way. I like my timing. Therefore, It's expressed in what in this case is not adultery. It's expressed in impatience. How many of you are impatient? You've been praying. You've been wanting things to change, 
And we could name a plethora of things. But things hasn't changed. As if God is not on the throne or in control. As if he's not doting over your life and he, he knows what you're going through. Until all of a sudden, this is a convicting sermon. Suddenly we turn the corner here, impatient. Because as people understand God, we understand his sovereignty and understand his direction in life. When I'm someone who is characterized by impatient in terms of I don't like your way, I, like, I don't like your timing, I like my way and my timing, I'm saying that now to God, God, your timing, your way is not as important as my timing and my way. And all of a sudden, it expresses itself in idolatry. He says in verse 6, and I'm back to the New King James, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Do you know why God did that? Why did God do that? Because he's really mean? I mean, why would he do something like that? Because he has said in his word, the wages of sin is what? Is death. That's called justice. That's, God, that's called God keeping his promise that the wages of sin is death. He sends these venomous snakes, not a fun way to die, I don't think, getting bit by snakes. They were dying, all of them. But what happens? Well, they repent. Whatever it takes to my two kids, to my mom and dad and their four kids, whatever it takes, God, you, you work on him. Because it doesn't seem like he's going to get right. He's never going to give his life to you. Lord, here he is. You have him. Because I'd rather for you not to be able to walk or enjoy your life physically. But I know that you've given your life to the Lord. And when he takes your last breath, you're going to be in heaven. That's God's only reason he does what he does. We're hardheads. He says in verse 7, and said, we have sinned. So they cry out, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And God says, I'm not going to do it. Is that what he says? This just and holy God, he changes his mind. You may think you don't deserve to die for this because you're better than the next guy across the street or you're better than the next guy in the aisle or you're better than the news that you watch. But remember, the gold standard of holiness is God. And that's what every human stands against. That's the holiness we must have. Once again, you've been baptized. You've had all of these privileges. 
You've been baptized saying that you are born again. You've taken of the Lord's Supper. I'll go back in the Old Testament. You, you, you were baptized into Moses. You were baptized into the sea. You are running the race. You cannot take it any other way. That's why Paul gives you that warning in chapter uh, 9 at the end. Run with discipline. Keep your hands on the plow. Run, run. I'm giving you everything you need, but you still have to run. Don't get distracted. Run. And then he gives them an example right here of the children of Israel born again, baptized through the sea. The cloud providing for them. And yet, many of them die. You've been baptized through the cloud and the sea. You've eaten at the communion table. But having your heart enticed by idolatry, God says, man, you deserve to die. And so what happens when we see our idolatry? We cry out to God, hopefully. It provokes us to repentance. And we say, we've sinned. Now, what does God do when we say that? If he was a mean God, he would say, no, I'm sorry. You don't get another chance. But that's not what God does. He tells Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. And set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. This is their journey on the way to the promised land. They messed up, and God says, you're going to get bitten because we're all, we've all been bitten by sin. But if you look at this serpent, this brass serpent on a pole, which is a brass is the metal of, of, of judgment in the Bible, he says, you will live. So it's still going to take faith. I know the wages of sin is death. And I know that idolaters should die. But you know what? I want them to live. So he gets Moses. He fabricates this, this brass serpent on a pole. Verse 9 says, and so it was, just as God said, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. That's pretty gracious of God to let idolaters live. That's what he does because he's a loving God. He's redeemed them. It reminds me of John chapter 3 uh, when, when uh, Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus and he tells him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever, and I love the King James here, it, the King James says, whoever believeth, that ETH is very, very, very important. That ETH means you don't start believing and stop and think you're going to get to the kingdom. That ETH means you continually believe. You run the race. That's, that's the only reason I love the King James, because those things matters, especially in a world when you think once saved are always saved. I can't find it in the scriptures. He says that whoever believeth, continual believes in him. Because these people started out running the race, Red Sea. They're running. They're, they've, they're, there was the gun. And most of them, well, in that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, the new generation went in the promised land. I got enough word. 
Whoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus having a conversation with Nicodemus, and he says to Nicodemus these words. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believeth in him may have eternal life. When the children of Israel, they were bitten, they would look at that serpent, and they would not die. Christ himself, he will be the snake on the cross, and he'll be nailed there, naked, beaten, and bleeding. And you know what? Anyone who placed their trust in Jesus can have eternal life. They can be healed, and they can be forgiven. Christ is the snake on the pole. And that sounds weird to me because in Genesis 3, what was the cursed animal in creation? It was the serpent. Jesus Christ is the snake on the pole. That's a demeaning statement. But it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was cursed for you and me. You know, I know a lot of people, and I love them, they wear those crosses on their necks. Someone, if you really want to get down to redemption, need to make a pole with a serpent on it and wear that around your neck. That's redemption. We like to clean things up a little bit, but that's redemption. That shows how much Christ put. The holiest man that ever lived becomes cursed for us. And we think we're going to live any way we want to and get to heaven. I'm going to be honest. I used to search the scriptures to find that loophole. There's only one loophole, and his name is Jesus Christ. And then he tells you, if you're, if you're truly born again, this is how you will live. You won't, you're going to make mistakes. But day in and day out, this is how you should live. Don't think you're going to live any way you want to, saying you're born again. Even though you've eaten at the Lord's Supper, and drink the communion drink. He tells us here, it doesn't work like that. And your example is these, the, the children of Israel, as they, they say go, and they begin their journey, and they fall by the wayside. They fall by the wayside. And then I look to the scripture and I see how gracious and long-suffering God is. I think of Saul, and I'm talking about the Old Testament. God gave him chance after chance after chance. And then you can go to Saul in the New Testament. You think about uh, the last prophet who they drug him with briars, and he finally confessed and gave his life, Manasseh the wickedest, most wicked king in the Old Testament. God gave him opportunity. God is, my God is a long-suffering God. He's a patient God. 
and he finally gave his life to the Lord. And we know the history of the children of Israel, how much they complain each and every day. And God is saying, no, it, there's a standard here. They want it their way. They wanted it in their timing. That's subtle idolatry. Just like the lusting after immoral sexual activity, it's also an idol when it supplants God's path, when it supplants God's provision, when it supplants God's parameters for sexual behavior. Well, the same thing happens back in verse 10. Look, look, look at t- verse 10 of chapter 10. He says, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Now, God is sovereign. We agree to that. This one who has created the heavens and the earth and matched it up so perfectly. But we say, hey, I could have did a better job, God. Don't let that be you. I could have picked things better and made things better for my life. And you begin to drive the wheel. He says in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That verse needs to be stretched out all across the context of chapter 8, 9, and 10. People saying they have the right to do this and do that. And they have the right to eat this food and drink these drink, And dedicating their food to God while they're sleeping at these altars. That's what God is saying. It's all right to look at TikTok, I guess. If it doesn't have a pull on you. If it's not leading you to sin. Anything on the internet. But be careful of your heart because it leads to sexual immorality. We need to be patient and let the Lord work in our lives. We need not to complain so much, Victor. God is in control of our lives. We need to know our weaknesses and don't think you stand firm. Know that we all have our weaknesses. You need to know your weaknesses. I need to know my weaknesses because our enemy, he knows them, and he has deep pockets. He can pull anything out and use it against us. It might be a Moabite girl. It might be a a, a shorter way to the path you want to go. But we need to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing what he has in store for us. He finally says, and let me say this. Because this is really good. Exodus 32. We should know what's happening there. Moses and Joshua. Moses has received the Ten Commandments. They're coming down Sinai. And Joshua says, oh, it's the sound of victory. And God says, no. Moses says, no, it's not the sound of victory. It's the sound of reverie and partying. That's what he says. And he gets upset about it. And he goes to Aaron. Remember that? He goes to Aaron because he left Aaron in charge. And he says, Aaron, what is your problem? And Aaron says what we say today, and it's just filtered on the news. It's it's never anybody's fault. 
He says, you know how the people are. They just, they're doing what they do. You know them, Moses. That's been an excuse from the beginning of time. Verse 21 of, of Exodus 32 says this, what did these people do to you that you led them in such great sin? How in the world did you allow this to happen, Aaron? Aaron says, oh, don't be angry with me, my Lord. Hmm. In a respectful way after he's allowed all this to happen. You know how the people are prone to evil. We are sinners. Accept it. That's just the way we're wired. We couldn't help it. We love to say that. That's just what happens. They told me, hey, make us some gods. And I threw the gold into the fire, and poof, this calf comes up. I used to tell my mom all kinds of stories, but my mom would never go for this one. <laughs> it, it just happened. I just threw some gold in the fire, and this calf come, comes up. We can't help it. In the middle of this discussion on idolatry, with our propensity as it is to idolatry, but to excuse any excuse about idolatry, God says, listen, guys, here's what I provide for every one of your excuse. You, I've heard your excuses. You've seen what happens when you don't obey when you go your own way, when you want to do things shorter, when, when you're not pleased with me because the way things are, you've seen what happened. And in all of that, he comes back and he tells us in verse 13, but you got to have the context in verse 13 because what he's saying in all of our propensities here to idols, he says this, be careful that you understand this. There's no excuse really and I'll close here. The worship team can come up. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In a nutshell, he says, you don't have to fall to these temptations. Idolatry, I told you a way not to, be, how not to be an idolater. I've showed you how not to grumble. You might not like where you're at in life right now. And I hate to tell you, God has you exactly, if you're a believer, God has you exactly where he wants you right now. God's ways are better than ours. And he's saying, you have to trust me. You have to walk by faith because once again, my goal, my only goal is to get you home. It's not to make you the most happiest person in the world while you're here. My goal is to get you home. And if we ever can just sigh and say, okay, Lord, it's not about me being happy. It's not about me having this or doing the things I like doing. It's about me growing and becoming more and more like you. Because if I do those things, you're going to get me home. 
You're going to get me home. And that's the only thing that matters. Being home in a world where things didn't go your way, can you imagine the joy you have when you get there? When you were sick and you stayed sick for 10 years or 15 years or 30 years, you never had good health, you never were in a great relationship, and you stuck with it and those things, and you have to weigh that out with the Lord. But I'm just saying, don't start doing other things. Follow the Lord because it'll be worth it when he calls you home. It'll be worth it. 30, 23,000, they said, fell by the wayside in one day in the book of Numbers, all because they wanted to do it their way. These are written for our examples. Take heed. Walk close to the Lord. Enjoy fellowship with him. This is not home. I believe happiness is overrated. This is not home. Don't look for your happiness here. He gives you joy down here. I think that's, and he needs to give us joy because most of us, some of us are in situations it can't be anything but joy. But Lord, I'm doing this for you. I'm holding steady for you because I know you have something for my bones hurt. I can't even walk anymore. Thank you, Lord, for being gracious. I don't have to stay in this state forever. We have to play the long game, you guys. And the long game is that God knows more and he, he's better than us than we are to ourselves. We need to trust him and lean not to our understanding and live one day at a time serving others, getting our eyes off ourselves and, and helping others, being concerned for brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Jesus said how we should live. Let's pray. Father, if I'm not sure about anything else, I'm sure about this scripture. I'm sure that you love me. And I'm sure that when, I, when you revealed yourself to me, that was grace. That set me on the track to run the race. You gave me the Holy Spirit so I could get to the end. I know the Father is watching over me, and I'm being transformed day by day into the image of Jesus Christ. And I know that there's many, just like Pilgrim's process, there's many things that might make me stop for a little while. But I got to keep running. I've got to keep running whether I'm in a sick bed or whatever. I've got to keep running. I've got to put my eyes on Jesus and keep my eyes on Jesus whether I get the world. What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? So what? I want to get home. 
And that takes cuddling up to you, Jesus. And that's understanding that everything is not going to go right on this earth. It didn't go right for the king of kings. A man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. <laughs> Don't expect it to go well. I've said before, if you can go through a day and it was a good day, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And if you have bad day after bad day, whether it's your health, whether it's your finances, you can still say praise the Lord because you're not going to be here forever. God wants us to see and play the long game, you guys. It's not about eat, drink, and be merry down here. Then the other shoe drops. For tomorrow you die. <laughs> What's going to happen then? Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would keep their eyes on you, not on this glitter and glam of the world where you're never satisfied. You're always seeking more to satisfy. You're almost always reaching for something else to satisfy you. There's satisfaction in Jesus Christ, yielding to him, obeying his will, following him. That's where joy comes in at. May we understand that. May you let that sink into our hearts, Lord. And I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's stand and close with the song.